Good morning. Welcome to uh, the fifth webinar for the Confirmation Project. Um, I'm excited to have Shonda Gladden as our guest this morning. Um, she'll be leading us um, in a conversation about confirmation and identity formation, specifically focused on the importance of confirmation and equivalent practices in the era of Black Lives Matter. I'm personally so excited to hear about what Shonda has to teach us. Um, and I think this is a, a very poignant topic um, given the state of the world today and the Black Lives Matter movement and thinking about um, that movement's effect on the way we form Christian identity in congregations. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Reverend Shonda Gladden. She is the mother of Zuri, and um, she said, of all the things that you can say about me, that's probably the most important. She's also the pastor at um, Allen Ten Temple in Marion, Indiana. So if you're in the area, I'd encourage you to visit that congregation and get to know her personally. Um, Shonda worked as a researcher for the Confirmation Project. Um, she visited three congregations, including uh, First AME in Las Vegas um, and a number of other congregations. And I imagine she's going to speak about some of those today. While we're doing, um, while Shonda's speaking, you're going to have the opportunity to type questions in if you're interested. So if you go to the left sidebar of the, your Google Hangout screen, um, you'll see an, a place where you can click to to chat in the group chat. As you type questions in, I will keep track of those. And at the end of Shonda's presentation, I will pose those questions to her. So um, Shonda, welcome. Um, thanks for joining us. And um, we're excited to learn from you. I should also say that um, Shonda is a well-traveled woman. And is, uh, even though she's from Marion, Indiana, she's currently in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I'll turn it over to Shonda and let her um, share her presentation with us. Thanks for being here, Shonda. Thanks so much, Katie. I am so excited to be here um, with the way that things are going on in the world. It's a busy time uh, for many of us, I'm certain. Uh, however, I am grateful for the opportunity to speak about this very important uh, project that we are so blessed to work on. Uh, many thanks to the Lilly Foundation, Inc., uh, for the Lilly Endowment Foundation, Inc., so uh, making sure that we're able to do this type of work because it's so meaningful, uh, I think, not only to the life of the church, but as we're engaged now in this public theology realm, um, I think it's it's going to certainly make a difference in the direction in which we go. And so um, just a little bit of uh, overview. Um, the slides will come up momentarily about exactly what we're talking about today. Um, as Katie has said, I am part of the AME research team. I'm so grateful to my colleague, uh, the Reverend Dr. Reginald Blunt, who is the uh, member of the steering committee that's representing the AME Church. Uh, and he has brought me on board for this project as I was journeying through the PhD program on the campus of Northwestern University, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. And so uh, we made that connection and we continue to do the work of the academy for the sake of the church uh, so that we can continue to make meaningful difference in the lives that we are to whom we are called. I want to begin this conversation around confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices uh, by setting the stage, if you will, or setting the context. Um, in my research as a theologian, I understand that context is very important to the ways in which people are shaped, people are formed, and our context certainly speaks to uh, the ways in which we uh, uh, grow into who we are becoming. And so, uh, womanist theologian, uh, the Reverend Dr. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Evelyn 
Jalen J. Parker uh, at SMU. Uh, she has written this wonderful, uh, wonderful theological treatise on Trouble Don't Last Always, Emancipatory Hope Among African-American Adolescents, uh, one of her first publications. And in this particular publication, she talks about the ways in which the social historic context of her own upbringing, as well as the upbringing of the lives of the adolescents that she uh, did the ethnographic research on, the ways in which their context shaped the way they saw God, the ways in which their context um, uh, painted or uh, was the lens through which they saw the life of who they thought God to be. And so in her text, she states this, that the vivid images of Jim Crow picket lines mass meetings and hate crimes are etched in my memory of early, early adolescence as though it were yesterday. These events were enough to pull most youth and their families to the abyss of hopelessness. However, my African-American community, especially the church, was the womb of hope protecting its youth from despair while nurturing their expectation. I marvel at the ability of my congregations and its constituent churches to foster hope and teenagers amidst the turbulent events of the time. Uh, next slide. In light of uh, what Dr. Parker, next slide, in light of what Dr. Parker has brought forward to us that you can hold there, um, I, as a theologian, am interested in what our words about God, theologos, what our words about God have to say to us in light of what the society around us is saying to us. And so uh, particularly in this season in which we see the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which we'll define uh, in just a moment, um, it was important for me to take into consideration what is the type of context that our young people, those that we are uh, working with confirmation equivalent practices and confirmation as a whole in our local churches, what are the kinds of things that they are attempting to find answers to and you, how is it that the the, the theology that we are helping them to shape their their um, their own living theology. Uh, how is it that they are able to answer life's pressing questions in the era of Black Lives Matter? And that's not just for Black adolescents, though many of the adolescents and the youth in our churches are Black. Not all of them are. And so if you're tuning in and you fall outside of the black community or the diasporic community, I don't want you to tune out just yet. I want you to stay in with us because I believe that this pro this project um, and this particular area of this project uh, speaks to a, a broad scope of people. And so to get us to what it means for black people to do church, to be church, to experience church. I pulled from um, Dr. James Evans, um, his systematic theology, We Have Been Believers, to speak to the difference, one, in why some have said, or it has been said, that the most segregated hour uh, in the entire uh, United States is always that Sunday morning church hour. Um, why is that so? Um, is it uh, a possibility that perhaps we can worship together on a day-to-day -day basis every single day? Why are there black churches? Why are there white churches? Why in the study that we're doing for the confirmation project, why is that, Why are there differences in the congregations? And so to that effect, um, I, 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 I appreciated this quote 
from Dr. Evans, in which he says the formative culture of the colonies, that being the, uh, the American colonies in the United States, demeaned the African as human being. Um, the African brought here against their will in slavery. Not that black history begins there, but to speak specifically about the history of blacks that were brought here as slaves, as by associating blackness and thus black people with evil. It devalued community and idolized, idolized the individual. This cultural conflict has not been resolved in contemporary American life. As African-Americans struggle with the pull of a secular, materialistic, hedonistic, narcissistic, and pessimistic culture, they also experience to varying degrees the magnetic hold of a spiritual, integrated, communal, and hopeful counterculture. African-American Christian faith, and this is where we're hanging our hat, is in part a response to this cultural conflict, attempting to navigate with varying degrees of success, a course between the old and the new, the familiar and the strange. And so we worship the same Jesus. We have the same concept, if you will, of the Godhead uh, that is found both in the dominant culture or rather the normative white culture, as well as in the African-American Christian context. But the ways in which we do that and the reasons why we do that uh, tend to be different, not to paint with a broad brush, because again, we are not a monolithic people, but to be attentive to the reality that there's a show enough difference in black church. And so next slide, we talk about this because if there's a difference in black church, and we do believe that there's a biological and genetic difference, and uh, rather not a biological or genetic difference, but rather a cultural difference in black bodies, uh, how then do we talk about uh, the ways in which our identities are formed? And why is that important? Because Parker Palmer, Parker, Parker Palmer <laughs> posits that individuation or identity formation is an ever-evolving core within our genetics, our culture, our loved ones, those we cared for, people who have harmed us, and people we have harmed. The deeds done, good and evil to self and others, experiences lived, and choices made, all of these come together to form who we are at this moment. Our individual identities, whether we acknowledge the ways in which they are shaped by these varying uh, variables or not, the reality is that we are shaped. And so uh, the ways in which we come to be who we are, uh, this formation of identity, if we are attentive to it and self-aware enough, uh, we can tend to take in um, some very helpful uh, information that we can become equitable, mem equitable members of society. And so all of that theological uh, backstory to get to, so what is it that we're doing next slide? as it relates to the children. <laughs> For in this moment, we know that there is this historic water crisis in Flint, Michigan. Although it began three years ago, uh, or rather to be addressed by my colleague, the Reverend Byron Moore, an AME pastor in Flint, Michigan, as he began the call to address the heinous and very, uh, very much distressing uh, situation of the water poisoning in Flint. Our children are attending churches or their families are attending churches. Our children are wrestling with questions of their own identity, their own self-worth in the midst of a poisonous water system in Flint. Uh, the next slide. In this moment, our children are wrestling with 
the notion that we have state-sanctioned state violence against black bodies that is at an, a, a, a disproportionate number to bodies that are of different races. Unintended, but not a mistake. From 1999 to 2014, the slide that you're seeing in front of you, these are just some of the faces of those black bodies that have been gunned down, unarmed by state-sanctioned violence. Our young people are wrestling with that to bring it much closer to home, why it's important to us as AMEs. One of our dear youth that came through our confirmation equivalent practices at DuPage AME Church in Lyle, Illinois, Sandra Bland was one of those whose death we still are seeking additional answers for we are not uh, in agreement with what has been said. And so our young people are wrestling with this. She's one who came through uh, some of the, the programs that we'll talk about in just a moment as we talk about the confirmation equivalent practices. And she's dead. Her friends, her family, the children in our churches like her, they're wrestling with this in this moment. Next slide. If all of these things weren't enough to consider the context in which we are trying to do confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices, uh, less than seven months ago, or just about seven, eight months ago, at our historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, my colleague, the Reverend Dr. Clemente Pinckney, uh, and several others of my friends and colleagues were gunned down, attending Bible study, attending to their own faith formation, including a young adult who had come through our confirmation equivalent program, Tawanza Sanders and the others there who you see their faces on the slide, uh, Dr. Middleton, Dr. Sharonda, as well as Ethel Lance, Ms. Myra Thompson, Dr. Simmons and Ms. Susie, gunned down, attending to their own faith formation and the children both Dr. Pinckney's children and other children in the church that have come through our confirmation equivalent programs as AMEs. They're wrestling with what does it mean to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, who will come to judge the quick and the dead. When in this moment, these are the types of contextual experiences that our young people are dealing with. Next slide. And so in light of these moments, in light of this context, how do youth navigate identity formation? How do we nurture and cultivate a congregational context that is a safe space, is a healing space, is a space where young people can indeed say Black Lives Matter? I don't want to give the illusion that Black Lives Matter is uh, about the African Methodist Episcopal Church, because for those who are unaware of what the movement is about, uh, you would do yourself a great service to visit the blacklivesmatter.com uh, website to learn more about the movement. But the movement itself is one that did not begin in the AME Church, um, but much like many of the civil rights movements prior to the Black Lives Matter movement, just because it didn't begin within the church doesn't mean the church is not involved in the movement. And so it is a unique contribution that goes beyond the extrajudicial killings of black people by police and vigilantes. And this is the Black Lives Matter movement. It goes beyond the narrow nationalism that can be prevalent within some black communities, which merely call on black people to love black, to live black and to buy black. 
keeping straight the black men in front of the movement while the sisters of queer, trans, and disabled folk take up roles in the background or not at all. Black Lives Matter is a movement uh, that affirms the lives of black, queer, and trans folks, disabled folks, black undocumented folks, folks with records, women and all black lives along with the genders, along the gender spectrum. It centers uh, those that have been marginalized within black liberation movements. It is a tactic to rebuild the black liberation movement. And so I don't want to give the impression that this is a church movement because it's not, but I want to give the context out of which we, um, uh, rather the context in which we place the confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices that we are doing in conversation with this national movement, as well as the context of all of the other ways in which uh, children of black skin, black hue and black hubris are engaged in uh, a very specific type of faith formation. And so next slide, how did we do this? Well, we uh, utilizing the portraiture methodology we, uh, my colleague, Dr. Blunt and I, uh, Reginald Blunt, we have been, we attended to three site visits um, from the spring 2014 until most recently the winter of 2015. And um, we identified uh, several AME churches uh, based on the protocols that uh, the steering committee and, and the members of the research team had worked through over numerous months um, to determine the types of programs that would give us the most key insights into what it means to do confirmation. Um, and confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices, which from here to four, I'll probably just say CEP, um, are those practices that engage in youth discipleship, faith formation, and does the work to indoctrinate or rather introduce um, children at various levels and ages to faith practices in hopes that they will develop into uh, meaningful citizens and they will have a lifetime of faith on which to build. And so the three sites that we identified, originally we thought, well, do we try to hit a site on the West Coast, um, in the middle United States, the East Coast, and the Southern United States? That was our initial thought process of how to identify the congregations. And so um, as a daughter of Reed Temple AME Church in Glendale, Maryland, that's my home church, shout out to Reed Temple, Pastor Washington, and we'll get to talking about Reed Temple in just a moment. I knew that when the opportunity presented itself, because of the way that the CEP at Reed Temple shaped me as a child who came through the program there um, and then continued to to nurture and develop other young people when I went on into further ministry. I always knew that Reed Temple was going to be a part of that. And so that was the East Coast Church. Um, but then as Reggie and I began to talk, well, who do we know that's doing meaningful things as it relates to youth discipleship development? And honestly, we had so many to choose from because we... Um, Given our role in the AME Church, we are engaged in a number of opportunities to work with the YPD, which the Young People's Division of the a of the Women's Missionary Society of the AME Church. We have a number of opportunities to work with various children's churches and the um, the summer institutes, or rather, the Christian Education Congresses around the Connectional Church. We have opportunities to see so many dynamic things that are happening within the AME church um, to make certain that our youth never feel lost, never feel left out, but they have a solid foundation to deal with all of these contextual nuances of which I just spoke. And so that being said, 
we had a hard time choosing just three churches. Um, and so we reached out and read the websites of a number of our local churches before we submitted the request to venture out and to um, make an opportunity for us to choose which churches we were going to select. And so Anderson Chapel AME in Colleen, Texas, uh, Reverend Dr. William Campbell came to the fore uh, because we found that it would be a unique opportunity to gain some insight on the ways in which uh, the children of military parents and the surrounding areas uh, may engage in confirmation and equivalent practices. And so uh, after having conversation with Reverend uh, Campbell and the members of his staff, we thought, well, maybe Anderson Chapel will be a, a good choice. So we put that on the list of our uh, growing uh, list of top five that we uh, finalized at the end of the day. But then we asked people all across the AME church, who is doing meaningful work as it relates to youth and discipleship development? And they, uh, by and large, said, well, if you're talking about confirmation, there's really only one person in our denomination that you need to talk to and talk about because he's the one who's literally written the book. Uh, and that is the first AME church in Las Vegas, Nevada with Reverend Dr. Ralph Williamson. And so uh, these three churches became our um, kind of mini pool to, to, to venture out and to begin to do our research. And so we attended to site visits over the course of a few months. Let's go to the next slide. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about what we saw at each of these churches and what insight we can gain into the role of confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices from these three site visits. And so at Anderson Chapel AME Church in Colleen, Texas, again, I mentioned uh, this particular church is one that sits in very close proximity to a military base. Um, there are members of the United States military that attend worship. There are children of, 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 of veterans. There are children of individuals that are often transient that are worshiping here. And so when we went to the site visit at Anderson Chapel, um, Colleen, we were greeted with such warm hospitality. Uh, and when the uh, portrait is finalized uh, to be vetted with Pastor Campbell right now. You'll see, you'll be able to see that if you visit the Confirmation Project website and you'll get to see a few of the details in terms of what the programs there look like. But just some of the key factors um, is that they have a, the, a youth minister uh, who is the leader of all of the confirmation and NCEP practices. They don't have a confirmation program, but what they do is youth discipleship through the traditional model of African Methodism for young people, which is the Young People's Division of the Women's Missionary Society. I'm actually here at the Women's Missionary Society Executive Board meeting uh, where that particular group, that particular board for the Connectional Church uh, will be in conversation, will have been in conversation all this week. In addition to the YPD, they have a children's church and a youth Bible study that is very regularly attended. And the church uh, is, is they do a total church discipleship paradigm in which the adults are engaged in a, a specific curriculum along with Pastor uh, Campbell. But the young people are also doing the same thing rather in um, 
oh, back channel, sorry, back channel conversation. Um, the young people are doing the same thing throughout the calendar year. And so we have the children and the youth, excuse me, the children and the adults that are going through similar um, uh, Bible studies and they come together because what Pastor Campbell, uh, what makes the heart of Pastor Campbell's uh, confirmation equivalent practice is that he is a very hands-on pastor. Um, he, though the church that you see in front of you there now is the, is the one that they, uh, they had services in when we visited, they recently built a new facility that is connected there because they endured some flooding. But in his hands-on approach, he makes certain that there's always a space for children and young people to know that they are not relegated to children's church and they do not only have to go to their youth minister uh, for their development, for their questions about what does it mean to be saved, for their questions about who is God, who is Jesus, but he has a very accessible ministry. And so the insight gleaned from the Anderson Chapel Colleen site is that uh, youth ministry, confirmation equivalent practices must be relatable and accessible. Young people must have a, a sense that they belong, not just in the youth spaces, which sometimes is what we do when it relates to church development and the organization of the church, is that the adults get pastored and the children they get programmed. Shout out to my brother um, that we're getting ready to talk about at the next church, Pastor Russell St. Bernard, uh, for that phrase. Uh, but in Anderson Chapel, Colleen, the focus, the nexus, the drive is that we see the opportunity for young people to always have access to the people that are important in shaping their faith. And so access and relatability is critical for CEP. And that's the insight we gleaned from Anderson Chapel. Let's move to the next one. Um, the second site that we visited was Reed Temple AME Church in Glendale, Maryland, uh, which is actually one church in three locations, um, which is Glendale, Maryland, Silver Spring, Maryland, and Washington, DC. Again, uh, full disclosure, this is my home church. Uh, this is the church where I attended the youth ministry and the YPD as a child growing up. But now the ministry is has evolved significantly since my exposure to it. And so when we did the site visit, um, we invited the participation of my colleague, uh, Reverend Marcus Wheeler, who is a graduate student as well as a pastor in the Washington metropolitan area. Uh, we did the site visit to the Saturday, um, the Saturday gathering uh, that is called the remix. Um, the remix is is exactly what it sounds like. It is an unconventional um, but similar opportunity for youth of all ages to experience God on their own terms, where they have their own band, they have their own choir, they have their own worship space. They make it their own. And the remix itself uh, was something that I had never really experienced as it relates to youth discipleship development uh, and its uniqueness uh, because it was youth led. And so the insight from the Reed Temple AME Church uh, CEP is that uh, confirmation and the CEP, the confirmation equivalent practices that are going to gain the most traction are those where there is youth buy-in. That when the young people believe that they have ownership 
of the space and the opportunity to ask their questions very forthrightly, they tend to gain a better sense of belonging. And that in and of itself develops a deeper foundation for spiritual formation. That when there is the ownership that uh, belongs to the young people, they're much more likely to buy in to the experience. And then it is much more likely to be a sticking type of foundation uh, at, at that that's the insight we gain from Re Temple. Uh, but now I want to move to the one that I'm going to spend the most time on, and that's first AME in Las Vegas. Uh, because these first two that I spoke of, we only did what we're calling snapshots. We did not do a full detailed um, write-up of the site. Though the site visits were identical, we found that the, the most um, meat, if you will, says the pescetarian who doesn't eat meat, but the, the weightiest amount of um, material for us to glean from as it relates to confirmation specifically was at First AME Church, Las Vegas. And why is that? One, because as I said, Dr. Ralph Williamson has written the book literally on confirmation in African Methodist Episcopal Church settings. Uh, he, along with evangelist Terry Key Wesley, have a very closely knit program to minister to, uh, and, and I don't know, know that we necessarily want to call it a program, but it, it's a paradigm because program always has that um, kind of uh, connotation, if you will, that it, it, it has a, um, a beginning and an end. But what they're doing is, is what they call a lifestyle. Confirmation is a lifestyle and it is a foundational lifestyle wherein young people are nurtured to become um, the church, not just of tomorrow, but the church of today. And so Dr. Williamson, uh, in his book, he has written out a confirmation program that his young people attend to uh, for multiple weeks. And this, this portrait is already up on the website. And so if you want to visit the confirmationproject.com right now, you can see uh, the link to this portrait right now. But I just want to share some of the insights from what we've gleaned from the first AME Church site as it relates to what the young people had to say in their own words. I was most struck by a dear, dear young lady um, who I, I managed to interview. And I don't know if they'll put the video up at some point in time on the, the Confirmation Project website, uh, but we solicited the assistance of a dynamic video editor to work with us to put together pictures and videos. And given the scope of this platform, we can't show the video, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll have access to that on the Confirmation Project website. And you can hear these young people in their own words. Uh, but here is what I'd like to hear from Kiara. Kiara McGilbert says that confirmation at first AME is where I learned about the Trinity, which is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I learned about confirming my faith of the church, being baptized, and what baptizing means. I learned about how to get to know God better for myself and how to connect with God by prayer. It's a lot that I learned, but it all taught me how to connect to the faith and how to connect that faith to faith in the church to the world around me. Kiera is a student at First 
AME Las Vegas. She is uh, one of the rising high school students there. And Kiara, along with several of the young people that we spoke with, really gave the insight that if confirmation is going to be is going to be a, a, a program, a, a process, a paradigm that is meaningful for the future of the church, it must be not only uh, something that they can hear when they come to church and experience when they come to church, but it has to speak to the core of who they are and help them to answer life's pressing questions. And so as we look at the, what we're doing in teaching youth and helping youth to become self-taught and teachers for themselves, um, hearing the voices of the young people is what I think is most meaningful, that we can put together all of the programs, all of the special projects, all of the various um, activities that we may want to do, pizza with the pastor, uh, bowling and party and ice skating, roller skating with the youth workers. We can put together all of those wonderful, fun things. Uh, but as the young people have said, particularly at first AME Las Vegas, uh, those things, they don't hold them for a lifetime. And it's when we do the nitty gritty work of teaching the foundations of faith that we are doing something meaningful for them and asking and answering real questions that they have. And so the current students that are engaged um, at, in the confirmation program, FA, uh, Dr. Williamson says that it was birthed out of his heart um, as he was teaching uh, or rather as he was a student coming through his doctoral program, this was part of his project. And so Pastor Williamson says this, what I love about the developing your spiritual understanding, which is the confirmation book, is it takes you from the very simplicity of what a person needs to know. And then it gives you all of those things that are pertinent to your faith. It gives you the tenets of your faith so that you can articulate your faith in an intelligible manner. And that's not what we always want for our children, to not simply regurgitate some facts about, it's important, don't get me wrong, I'm a pastor, and so I thoroughly believe that being able to re re recite some passages of scripture, that's the, the beginning of a foundation of faith. But that's not where it ends. We want our children, we want even our adults to be able to articulate the foundations of faith in an intelligible manner. And so uh, he says this so that we can be able to speak as the Jews, as the Muslims, as the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons. So when people ask you what it is that you believe, you can tell them more than I'm saved, sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. You can tell them exactly what it is that you believe. And that is the whole purpose of what I was trying to accomplish, says Pastor Williamson. Um, this, this takes you all the way through it to the point that when we celebrate, when you graduate from confirmation, we want you to invite your members, your family members, your friends, so that they can see that you are now becoming a disciple of Christ. And so this is the whole of what the role of confirmation in this Black Lives Matter movement. It is to develop disciples. We often focus on developing disciples when people are adults, but there is a, a great opportunity for us as the church of 2016 and the church that desires to move away from 
or rather to respond to the rise of the nuns and the duns and the religiously unaffiliated. We want to get to the point that we are still a relevant church. And so the next slide, how do we take these insights that we glean from these three churches and to uh, some helpful insights to give us the role of confirmation now? It's one to note, to know, and to constantly bring it to the fore, that identity formation is greatly impacted by socio-historic context. And so to do confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices in a vacuum and act as though we're able to teach the foundations of the faith and ignore what's going on in the lives of our young people around us, we do a disservice not only to who we say we want to be as the church, but we do a disservice to our young people. And that's not what it means to create disciples, to make disciples, to nurture disciples. Confirmation and confirmation equivalent practices that are relatable, that are relevant, and that are real, these are the kinds of practices that yield results. These are straight out of the mouths of the young people that we visit at the site visits. Young people respond when the people doing the work are relatable and approachable. Young people respond when the foundations that may be old and may have come throughout our traditions, when they're re relevant, when they have something to do with what's going on now. And then when they're real, when we don't shun the difficult questions, when we don't avoid the opportunity to talk about non-normative ways of being Christian, because students are listening everywhere. Students have access to Google, have access to Bing and all of the various search engines that we have access to. And since that's the case, and since we have television and cable and movies and friends of so many different backgrounds, our students are listening. And so as our students are listening, we must be practitioners who are attentive to the myriad conversation partners that are already there as it relates to youth identity and formation. And when we do that, we see that we flourish and the work that we are doing is one that uh, holds, holds in common uh, the reality of who we say we want to be as a church. And so uh, this is the close of my presentation uh, for the webinar, but let's go to the next slide because I know that we have some more questions as we are uh, live uh, around the world right now, as we're live right now around the world. Um, if we, We're gonna keep the conversation going for the next uh, 10 to 15 minutes as you are available, but I wanna thank you, uh, Dr. Katie Douglas for the opportunity. Uh, thank you, Lily, again, and I'll turn it over to uh, Katie as the host. Thanks, Shonda, that was so great. Um, I feel like those who have joined us live and those who will join us later will both be able to glean from um, your presentation. And um, I appreciate how you brought up just so many issues that are currently present, uh, how black bodies are treated outside of the church and within the church and the Black Lives Matter movement. I think those are really important things that we all need to um, just continually uh, be aware of and uh, educate ourselves about. Um, I just want to remind our viewers how to ask questions. If you'd like to write a question in for Shonda, you can type it into, there's an opportunity to type into a chat box. It will be on the upper, there's a, a link or a little button somewhere you can push up um, on the up. In my screen, it's the upper left, it's blue and it says chat. So you can um, type in a question or it says Q&A, it might say Q&A for questions and answers. And I'll pose those questions to Shonda as they come in. 
Um, Shonda, I wanted to ask you, you, you started out with a question about, or uh, one of the um, quotes you pulled up was about how the church um, had served as a womb of hope for one of the earlier, uh, a woman who lived kind of a generation, it sounded like before our generation. I'm curious to know um, if you think that these congregations you visited and maybe even in your own ministry still serve as a womb of hope in the, the present context. If there's still kind of a sense of, um, and you talked about how Sunday morning is the most segregated hour, um, is part of the reason for that because it's this womb of hope and people kind of are able to go to um, and be restored in a space that is countercultural, as you said. Can you talk about that some? Certainly. You you really uh, begun to answer it, as you said, and you and I, we're both moms, and so we frequently have talked about our children throughout this process. And so as a mom, um, just knowing what it means to uh, be a womb of, of support and comfort and nurturing uh, in birthing my daughter, Zuri, the notion of the church as a womb of hope is still real and, 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 and it's necessary. Um, that, you know, when the child is in the womb, um, there is the protective care of the mother for the entire 10 months uh, as the developing systems are happening there. And so I thought that was such a rich, very womanish uh, way of, of illuminating what it means for the church to be what it is, that the church is responsible for the mothering, for the caring, uh, to be that space where we don't cause our young people to come through a, a breach or come through a hurt or a harm, but that we are providing the right nutrients, uh, the right nourishment while they're in that womb of hope, because there will come a time of birthing when we will birth these children into the world. And if we have done a disservice and <laughs> not preparing them uh, through the process by raising these types of issues, um, we know what happens when, when babies are impacted in the womb in a, in a negative manner. And so uh, it's our responsibility as the church to be responsible stewards and, and to be the type of womb uh, that raises uh, disciples for Christ. So, yeah, I definitely think that's relevant and that's rich and real. Yeah. Thanks for commenting on that. I, I completely agree. It seems like the church can is sometimes a place that people experience as um, da a damaging place. But I yeah, and it can be. Um, but ideally, we do want to be a space where people can grow and heal and feel safe um, and protected. Um, that leads to another question. Um, what What are the ways that the Black Lives Matter movement has affected ministries um, that, that you've seen, maybe the churches you've visited? I mean, in some ways, this is a very contemporary movement, and yet the challenge of resisting um, a patriarchal, white-dominated culture is nothing new. Um, so, would you just talk about some examples of how you've has you know how, like you said, it's not the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not an AME movement, but it is something that is affecting the Black Church and the AME Church in very um, significant ways. Could you? Um, just share about how you think that's affecting the way people are doing ministry and also um, Christian identity formation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Black Lives Matter movement and this notion, um, well, first and foremost, it is not a Christian movement. <laughs> and, and so to ask the question of how the Black Lives Matter movement uh, is impacting or, or, or even, I don't want to say impacting, but I like the, the notion of 
the ways in which it comes into conversation with the black church is important to note uh, because there are some uh, movement activists that would suggest that there is, is an antagonism between the black church and the Black Lives Matter movement because there are ways of embodiment that the black church has typically shunned, demonized, um, or otherwise ostracized from the work that it has done in being the institution of black church that are very much brought to the fore, lifted up and elevated as leadership in the Black Lives Matter movement. There's some tension there. There's some friction there. Um, and so churches that have embraced it and are of a more progressive, perhaps theological interpretation of scripture, uh, occasionally that, that intersection is one that is um, mutually fruitful. Uh, but I do want to encourage people to do some homework. The Black Lives Matter syllabus, um, there are a number of articles that have been written about the ways in which the Black Church and Black Lives Matter movement um, have been in conversation with each other and some of the tension. And so I invite those who are even more interested in this particular question to do some additional background homework and pull up that Black Lives Matter syllabus. We'll have to include that in a um, follow-up kind of to this webinar. Um, we'll we'll send people a link to this once the recording's available, and if you can send that to me, I'll share that uh, with our audience so that people can um, follow up and read, you know, educate themselves more. One thing you also talked about, and this is a question that I have, is um, there in when we do Christian education and formation and spiritual formation, so often it becomes about intellectual knowledge and indoctrination, as you said. And one of the things we're wanting to combat, I think, is um, kind of a resistance to embodied life and the embodied spiritual life. And you brought up those really um, powerful slides showing the faces of people who have, their black bodies have not been valued. Um, and yeah. People have been shot who are unarmed in the United States, um, and this is in many ways um, the, the people who are being protected are carrying the guns and the weapons. And so um, how are black bodies being affirmed in Christian formation practices in the congregations that you've visited? Uh, so in the congregations that we visited, I like that um, particular, and I think immediately of Anderson Chapel Colleen, um, that Reverend Campbell, uh, he's intentional. He doesn't go as far in the direction as um, Pastor Moss at Trinity UCC, shout out, and being unapologetically black. Uh, but he does ensure that, particularly during Kwanzaa, they uh, are decked out in their African attire and having conversations around what it means to be diasporic in, in our orientation, what it means to acknowledge um, black histories that didn't begin with the enslavement of black bodies, but it really looks at all of the myriad ways that blackness comes into the fore here in the United States. Um, and to, to not skirt the difficulties of institutional racial racism, to not skirt the, the, the real realities that Jim Crow and Jane Crow did have a baby. And it looks like we are seeing that baby being birthed into 2016 even now, as we're still wrestling with systemic uh, issues of, of racism and the ways in which um, we, 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 we don't value black bodies. So I think our role as the church, I try as myself as a pastor, to make certain that although we are multicultural, um, that our white members are aware that we value black bodies. And so 
I take pleasure and pride when my white members in particular are standing in solidarity with their pastor and with the other members to say, it's not a black white thing, but it is a reality that systemically and uh, institutionally for many, many centuries, Black bodies have been co-opted. Black bodies have been uh, disproportionately subjected to state-sanctioned violence. And even now, again, in Flint, Michigan, uh, while all of the people affected by the water crisis are not black, uh, we have seen a shift, if you will, that um, that that uh, lack of resources, financial resources, educational resources, generally uh, is a blackening of individual cells, that those people who are poor and uneducated to the eyes of the dominant culture tend to be blackened in different ways. And so they then receive the results of the treatment that black bodies have um, had uh, 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 inflicted upon them for centuries. And so, yeah, the church, I thank God that we exist. We still have a lot of work to do uh, in nurturing black bodies, but hopefully that answered your question. Yeah. Um, a follow-up to that would be, and you started to touch on this, is um, how can people who are not black support the Black Lives Matter movement? What ideas do you have? I mean, the ones that come to mind immediately for me are um, to educate ourselves, um, to follow up on the articles that you've talked about that have been written, and there are a number of um, books that have been coming out recently, um, Tanishi Coates' book um, that you know, are, is making its way onto a lot of college campus syllabi. It seems like that uh, would be a great starting place for a congregation, to maybe to begin a conversation. Um, but his book's called Between the World and Me. Um, it, and um, I know as somebody who's raising children, I want to raise them in a way that they appreciate differences in people and value um, all people. Um, so we um, you know, make efforts to befriend families from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds than, than ours. Um, but what other ways can you think of for individuals or for, for churches to um, maybe include some um, multicultural education and also offer um, explicit support of the Black Lives Matter movement and also the AME church to grieve alongside them in, in this contemporary time, which this is, I think, a very live issue, especially as we're thinking about forming the next generation of Christians. Yeah. Um that's a lot, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a lot, but uh, when you're engaged in this type of work, you, you expect these types of questions sometimes as well. And so I have the privilege of having my pastor hat on as well. And so where I pastor in, in Marion, Indiana, it's a city that is very much wrestling with the, ra the residue of racial disharmony from the 1930 lynching of boys who uh, were connected to my congregation, that they're, that they're just, they're family members, their descendants are still worshiping in our congregation. And so we're in a, a tense racialized city. And so my call in the embodiment in which I have a lived theology that sees these questions as important, it is important for me to build relationships outside of my local context to not be segregated. And so it means having conversations, as you said, with people who are not like you. It means get shifting away from the notion of a colorblind ideology because it's important for us to see each other's colors. Uh, because 
color is important, uh, culture is important, and to act as if those things aren't important, it, it is doing a disservice and it is a whitewashing that is unhealthy. So having conversations, breaking bread, it doesn't have to be something elaborate, but if you end up in Starbucks and folks are hanging out, just hang out and talk, not about race, not about culture, but just talk to get to know one another and see that we really do have a lot of uh, similar thinking about world issues, that we really are quite similar, even though we have a context that uh, sees us as other, uh, whether we are black or whether we are white, to just break down those walls to be uh, to be certain that we are engaged in community in meaningful ways. That, in addition to do your work, um, my mother in ministry, um, do your own work. <laughs> my mother in ministry, um, Reverend Dr. Ian Henning Byfield, who is um, the reason I'm here this week, actually, as she's running uh, for bishop in the AME Church, she uh, recently uh, preached in Richmond, Indiana, and she asked several questions of us um, in preparation for that. What do you want to say to the white evangelical Protestant congregations um, as it relates to how to do this work of being multicultural and being in community with each other? And it is, if you don't have black folks in close proximity to you, talk amongst yourselves. Talk about the ways that you encounter the Black Lives Matter movement and the things that you're thinking about as you see things come on television. Talk about the things that some families would only talk about at dinner time that we hide and kind of push under the, the rug. You know, when the Paula Dean situation came out, um, that she was very much embodied in her white Southern um, experience as a, a woman of a different generation. Well, talk about what that means to be in 2016 and to not, uh, that not to be culturally acceptable and the ways in which that then impacts what whiteness looks like. So it doesn't have to be a conversation between blacks and whites. If it hasn't first been a conversation among whites, um, it tends to be uh, entered into as a conversation that does damage to the black body that's being questioned. So once you do that first step, and then if you have opportunity to have conversation with blacks around a table, around a meal, uh, the joke is that AMEs are always meeting and eating, uh, but we're not really. But it's important to break bread. There is a theological um, significance of, of dialoguing over meals and that we even see that as evidence that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. When we come to the table for Eucharist, when we come to the Holy Communion table, we do this in remembrance of Jesus, the living Christ. And so how do we break bread together and then just talk as as friend to friend, as Katie and I are becoming friends working through this process? I've loved that we've gotten to share many meals through this research project. And I, I want to thank you for um, the unique perspective that you've brought to our project um, as a pastor, as a mother, um, as a black woman in the church, um, as, as somebody who can um, help, help us learn um, and, and also learn about Christian formation that's happening in the AME church that um, can help um, every denomination, each congregation kind of think about um, what their practices are and, and why they're doing them. Part, my favorite part about this project is how, um, because it's been ecumenical, um, it, it causes you to look at your own denomination and start to question, why do we do this the way we do? Mm -hmm. um, the, 
I mean, and I think that's a really valuable to, thing to just start with. Um, how you know, um, whether it's with regard to race or you know our own upbringing, you know, why do we do this the way we do it? It's a really great um, place to start. Um, Shonda, thank you so much um, for leading this. I know you're very busy and that you've had, um, you have a very busy week and um, I imagine um, weekend, I know you're preaching on Sunday. Um, yeah. And I, <laughs> she's a busy pastor. Um, thank you for offering your contact information for those who are viewing this also. You are welcome to follow up with Shonda um, through her contact information, also through our website. I want to invite those who are viewing this um, to, to visit our website. It's theconfirmationproject.com. At that website, you can read about portraits of various congregations that we visited. We're posting about two every month. Um, and I I have to confess that your the first AME is not up yet, but it will be one of the next two that we post. <laughs> um, that will be coming along with the video that you mentioned. Um, I don't know how I dropped the ball on that, but that will be posted soon. Um, so you can learn more about that congregation and hear from some of the youth voices in that church about how confirmation is affecting um, the development of their um, Christian identity as they become disciples. I want to thank um, the Princeton Theological Seminary. They're housing the grant that we have from the Lilly Foundation. Also, the Smart Church Project is the, um, the web technology company that we work with, Michael Gawecki and Brian Miller, and they've been absolutely fabulous. They facilitate all of these. Um, they make it possible for you to view these after the um, this is over. So on our website, under the resources link, you, under featured resources, you can view these webinars. There's five that have happened. Um, you can also download them as podcasts to listen to these after the event is over. Um, I also invite you, our, our project, as long as you're listen, watching this or listening to it before March 21st of um, 2016, you can still participate um, in our national survey that's taking place. So I'd, I'd invite you to sign up through a, the Contact Us link, give us your information, and we will then um, contact you about participating if you're one of the five denominations that's in our study. So um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Katie Douglas. Shonda Gladden's here with us. Um, thank you so much. And um, we'll see you at our next webinar, which you can find out about on our calendar on our website. Thanks so much. Take care.